Okay. I'm going to introduce our speaker for this evening. We would like to remind you that all speakers share their own experience, strength, and hope. They do not speak for the convention, Region 2, or Readers Anonymous as a whole. Tonight we have a speaker who I first met several years ago at the Lifeboat meeting in the city. His shares have always brought me sweet music for my soul. Please join me in welcoming Louis Q. Thanks for reminding me of my name. <laughs> uh, my name is Lewis. I'm a compulsive overeater and addict. Um, first of all, I'd like to welcome everybody to Oakland. This is my hometown. Uh, hope you have a great convention and uh, hope you enjoy yourself and I hope you get something out of it. To the newcomers, I hope you hear something you can use tonight. If you don't, there's going to be a lot of great workshops and a lot of great information, a lot of great courage here, a lot of great love, a lot of hope. Um, if you stick around, you're going to catch it. I really believe that. I think this is like a virus. You stay here long enough, and you're going to catch it. And there's a lot of people here that will testify to that. The first thing I always have to do when I share is thank the people in these rooms um, for saving my life, basically. I can't put it any other way. That's my story uh, from the very start was when I walked into these rooms, I weighed 470 pounds and I was dying. Uh, there's not a doubt in my mind about that. I have some pictures going around, and uh, yeah, I don't have very many pictures from that period because it seems like the only time I can move with any kind of speed is when there was a camera around. Uh, stayed out of the way of those cameras. I, I do have... Um, pair of pants. These are the pants that I was wearing in those pictures. These are the pants that I wore to my first meeting. These pants are size 72. Uh, these babies stretched and they were stretched all the way out. And, uh, you know, I filled them all the way up and there was no end in sight. When I came in here, uh, I was dying. You know, I had I had all kinds of problems, physical problems, uh, living problems, but mostly I was dying. I I, I had high blood pressure. Uh, you know, I couldn't sleep at night laying down. I had to sleep sitting up because I had so much weight on my chest that I'd wake up in the middle of the night gasping for air and with these screaming headaches. So I had to sleep sitting up. Uh, I had high blood pressure. My legs were swollen. Uh, I could, a lot of times I couldn't even put on my shoes. My legs were turning black from lack of circulation. Uh, just everything was, was falling apart in my body. I couldn't take care of myself physically. I couldn't stay clean. It was hard to take a shower. It was hard to do everything. When you're 470 pounds, your, your life is uh, it's hard. You know, um, things just the, the easiest thing, it seems like going out and going shopping. Well, I had to make choices every time when I went out and made shopping not when I got on the supermarket, right from the very start. I would go in the parking lot, and I want to park close because I didn't want to walk very far. But if I park close, somebody might park too, clo too close to my truck, and I couldn't get the truck door all the way open, and then I couldn't get in my truck, and I'd have to wait till they came back. But usually I'd park far away, and somebody would still park next to me, so I'd have to wait till they came back. And that's the kinds of things that you went through every day. With the food, it felt like I was in a war with the food. 
You know, and for me, the war didn't start in the morning. It started the night before when I finished. I swore the next day was going to be different. And uh, I, I don't know how it got to this point. Um, you know, people talk about some terrible things that happened in their childhood that they think that led them to the path of addiction. And I can say, honestly, uh, my parents did their very best. We didn't have a lot of emotion in our household. My parents were both survivors of the Depression. They lost their parents when they were kids, one of their parents when they were kids. My father lost both of his when he was, when he was very young. So their life was about survival, not about feelings. And that's what they taught us. But we are always loved. We always knew we were loved. We were taken care of. But uh, something in me was always an addict because the thing that I felt from the various earliest years was not food but fear. You know, and that's been the driving force behind my addictions has been fear. Um, I remember at the early age as a boy, I, I'd get in these fights and I would be so terrified. I was the biggest kid, but I'd always have other people picking on me because I wouldn't fight back. I was afraid to fight back and stand up for myself. There was something inside of me that I couldn't stand up for myself. And... Um, you know, later on, when I was 14, my father died, and he died a pretty terrible death. He, he more or less disappeared out of my life rather than really dying, and something happened to me with that. I know uh, I turned to sports, and I became a gym rat, and that's when I really first recognized the kind of the patterns of addiction. I came to uh, pretty much adopt uh, what became a really good model for an addict, and uh, I, I played basketball in high school. I was a gym rat. I was the first one in the gym. I was the last one out of the gym. I was practicing all the time. I was not physically gifted at all, but I felt that I could work harder than anybody else. That's how I was going to stay on the team, is my ability to work harder than anybody else. And that became the motto for my living. Uh, I adopted the motto of, you know, anything worth doing is worth doing fanatically. <laughs> anything worth not doing fanatically is not worth doing. And for an addict... Great motto. For living, it sucks. You know, uh, the kind of life I led, if you wanted somebody to go out and organize a demonstration or a riot, you know, I would attack that with full force. If you needed somebody to figure out how to pay a parking ticket or a bill, I was stumped. You know, until I, I was 45, I don't think I ever paid a parking ticket on time. I didn't pay a parking ticket until the registration said, you can't register your car until you pay this ticket. That's the way it was. Bills were always late. Checks were always late. Checks were bouncing. Um, I just didn't know how to live. Um, certain things that I felt passionate about, I could do, you know, and I did them with a lot of zeal and zest and, and, and success even. And a lot of times I did those things not because I was courageous or bold, but because I was so scared I would get in this place of just total terror and panic, and I would get so angry that I was, had this paralysis and this fear in my life that I would just do the craziest thing, and sometimes it worked, but most of the time it didn't. So that's how I lived my life till I got here. Uh, you know, when I was a kid growing up, my mom was a dietitian. I learned to eat well. We ate three meals a day. We didn't eat a whole lot of junk food. Uh, I really didn't have a problem with food until I got to college. I went to high school in Louisiana. I went to all-boys Catholic high school, and I ended up in college in Santa Barbara in co-ed dorms. And I was primed for addiction. You know, and my first addictions were food and drugs. And it's amazing. Uh, the first, uh, I started gaining weight, and uh, I also became a cocaine addict. And how you can do that, you know, a lot of people wonder, but it seemed to work for me. Um, sometimes, you know, uh, later on, I became a speed addict. 
And I was a hardcore speed addict going up to 470 pounds. You know, I was doing crystal meth every day, two, three, four, five, ten times a day. And I just kept on eating. And I couldn't stop. So I got to the point of uh, just being an addict. And when, when I, for me, that addict is best described in the big book. You know, when I read The Doctor's Opinion, when I read Bill's story, uh, when I read the next two chapters of the big book, um, I, you know, I finally understood what I was and the way I lived. I understood that I was an addict. I was an addict with food. I was an addict with drugs. And I was an addict in the way I thought and lived. Fear ran my life. I reacted to everything out of fear. And that was my addiction. Was, was, I was a fear-based, fear-driven person. And I reacted that not by how learning how to deal with that fear, but by turning, trying to kill that fear inside of me, trying to numb that fear with food and drugs. So um, I got to the point where my life was basically in my apartment. You know, it, my life had gotten very small. And I was in that war with food. And like I said, it started at night when I was finished. Um, and I swore the next day was going to be different. And I swore the next day I was going to start a diet. And I've had diets in the past when I was younger that worked. But they were never, I don't think I dieted the way other people dieted. You know, people dieted, said, I'm going to lose some weight, I'll keep it off. To me, the whole point of the diet was to get to the point where I felt good enough to start eating again. You know, it wasn't to get to lose weight and to keep it off. It was just so I could feel good again about eating. And it wasn't, there was no health involved or nothing like that. There may have been a relationship involved. I wanted a relationship. I was worried about losing a relationship, whatever. But the main point of a diet was never about any type of relationship with food. It was about something I wanted or getting to the point where I felt good about eating again. In the end, diets were an excuse to eat. You know, I'd be on Tuesday or Wednesday, and I'd say, oh, I'm going to start a diet on Monday. Uh, being a compulsive overeater, I said, i got to get rid of all the food in the house, and I'm not going to throw it away. So it was an excuse for a huge three- or four-day binge. I had all this food I'd bought, and I was going to eat it all the next three or four days and start this diet on Monday. Well, by Monday afternoon, the diet was usually over, or Tuesday if it was going really good. The diet was over. And... Another week later, I'd be starting another diet with another excuse for a binge. And that's how my life went. So I would get to the point in the night where I'd eaten all this food, and I swore the next day was going to be different. And I'd wake up in the morning, and for some reason I had this diet, this, this weird thought that I didn't have to eat anymore. And I would put off eating as long as possible. And I've heard this story told over and over again in these rooms. And this is addict thinking, you know. Uh, to me, it, it's, it's what, what's inside of us. What's, when, when the addict part of our mind takes over, I'm not going to eat again. Well, you have to eat. You know, you're going to die of hunger if you don't eat. So around 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, it's the, the war would start up. I'm going to eat. I have to eat. What am I going to eat? Where am I going to get it? What am I going to do? You know, I can't eat. Where am I going to go? What am I going to do? What am I going to eat? And then the eating would start. And it wouldn't stop until late at night. And... For me, I came into OA and I heard people talk about grazing, and I didn't understand it. I heard people talk about binging. I didn't understand it. What I understood was I ate the same way I did drugs, and that was when the food was gone, I would stop. You know, there wasn't any uh, grazing to it. There wasn't any binging to it. It was just full-on, hardcore eating. Um, 
there's a line in uh, one of our pieces of literature about welcome home, welcome to OA, and it talks about, uh, you know, goes through kind of a list of qualifications. And it says, uh, did you ever uh, spend a sleepless night waiting for something uh, in the morning that was sitting in the freezer because you couldn't wait? I didn't. You know, if it was in the freezer and I knew it was there, I was going to eat it. You know, I wasn't going to wait till the morning. Uh, when I went shopping for something that I wanted, I had to get two of it because I'd eat a bag of cookies on the way home in the truck. You know, I wasn't going to wait till I got home. And so I'd have another bag for when I got home. That's just the way I ate. You know, I did not stop eating till the food was gone. So my life at 470 pounds had gotten really, really small. I mean, I was really isolated. I had friends that were trying to get me to go out and do things. And, you know, I would think, oh, man, uh, we're going to park and I have to walk and I can't walk and it's painful. I don't want to go. And for some reason at the last minute I'd get sick and make an excuse. And after a while they quit calling. You know, and not because uh, they didn't care about me anymore, but because, uh, you know, I wasn't going to show up. And they knew I wasn't going to show up. And they felt that they were hurting me, that I would be hurt by not showing up. And I felt better not asking me because I always felt bad when I said yes, and I always felt bad when I said no. And uh, But I felt better off saying no because I wouldn't have to face anybody and I wouldn't have to do anything. So finally my life got to the point where I recognized you know, I got to do something. And I started going to therapy. And I was like, just turned 46. And I couldn't work. Uh, I was so physically inept, you know, just uh, huge and and out of shape and unable to work, uh, exhausted um, that I, I couldn't work. So I, I started going to therapy. And a ther- my first therapist suggested OA. And I came back the next week and she said, well, did you go to an OA meeting? Couldn't find a meeting. You know, came back the next week, couldn't find a meeting. Well, you know, about as far as I was willing to look was in front of my television set in my living room. Still no meetings there. Thank God. And uh, this went on for a while, and finally I got another therapist, and she was a little more insistent. And so finally I went to my first meeting on October 6, 1999. And I really believe... That was the most important thing I have ever done in my life. Because if I hadn't done that, I'd be dead today. I, I don't have a diet mind. This disease will kill you. You know, they talk about crack and heroin and speed. I did all those things. But this disease will kill me. It will kill the people in these rooms. Ask the people that have died of diabetes, of heart attack, of strokes, you know, what this disease has done to them. What, ask the members of their family as they sit by and watch those people die. Well, that's what I was doing as I was watching myself die. Um, so if I hadn't gone to that meeting, I firmly believe I'd be dead. Now, I had a lot of problems in that first meeting. I heard a lot of stuff I didn't like, mainly about God. You know, the stuff around God scared the hell out of me. I was a pretty dogmatic atheist. I really strongly believe what Mark said about religion being the opiate of the masses. Since I was a drug addict, I was a lot more interested in the opium than I was about any religion. But, you know, there was a couple of things that happened uh, within the week before and the week after that just really convinced me um, that I needed to do something. The first was that those pictures that are going around were taken in a family reunion. Um, And it was the first family reunion that I'd been to. And the reason I went was because an aunt that had been very close to me 
was getting very sick, and then we figured it might be her last reunion, so I felt like I had to go. Let me tell you, that's one pissed off dude in those pictures. Uh, I hated my relatives. I thought they were all dumb and stupid. Uh, they have different politics than I do. I thought their lives were meaningless. And here I am locked up in an apartment at 470 pounds, and I was judging their lives. But again, that's the addict thinking. So what happened was I went down there, and um, I went down a couple of days in advance. My mom lived in that area. And my mom goes, hey, you need to take a shower. Well, I couldn't tell her that uh, I couldn't fit in the shower. You know, I went into trying. She had these glass doors on the shower, and I tried to put soap all over my body and slide through them, and I could not get through the shower door. And um, you know, the, it was come the the day of the uh, reunion was coming, and and my mom says you got to figure out how to take a shower and. So, um, you know, I snuck my screwdriver in there, and I dismantled the shower, went and took my shower, and my mom's pounding on the door. Hey, i got to use the bathroom. What's taking so long on there? I just put the shower back together. You know, I didn't want her to know that I couldn't fit in the shower. So that was one thing that happened. The second thing happened uh, shortly after that first meeting. I had some friends that finally dragged me out to a Springsteen concert. And I love music. Uh, I'm a hardcore rock and roll head. You know, I deadhead. Saw him like 300 times. I've seen Springsteen a bunch of times. I love music. I love live music. It's one of the places I really feel alive. I went to that concert, and something I love had turned into hell. You know, I sat in a seat with 25% of me on one, per- on one person, 25% on another person, my knees up around my face, and instead of enjoying the music, I hated the music. I hated everything about that show. And that had happened to everything I love. Uh, I'm a big A's fan. You know, I go to, I, I would go into 20 or 30 A's games. I couldn't go to A's games anymore because I'd break a seat in the Coliseum. Uh, I couldn't go out. Friends would have a barbecue. You know, I'd have to go around hunting for a chair that I could sit in, those white plastic chairs that everybody has. That's the way the chairs would go. Um, so those kinds of things happen. And... I knew I had no choice. But still I argued with my therapist about the God stuff. First of all, I didn't know if you guys would let me in if I didn't believe in God. See, when I never heard the part, God as you understand God. All I heard was God, and I started thinking about the God, uh, you know, the God of the, the, when I was a little kid and the God that I couldn't relate to anymore. And I knew I couldn't deal with that God. But, um, you know, Today, when I say I'm grateful that I was 470 pounds, a lot of people find that hard to believe. But I really am because at 469 pounds, I might have had one ray of hope that I could do that on myself. At 470 pounds, I had no such illusions. I knew that I had no choice but to stay in those meetings, that I had to do something. And my answer, I could hear it right away. That first night I heard people share about losing weight, losing lots of weight, and keeping it off for years and years and years. I heard people talking about eating the way I ate, feeling the way I felt, and they were leading sane, normal lives. Well, I thought they were sane and normal compared to the way I was living. I later found out they were just as crazy as I was. They just found a way to deal with it. And that's the 12 steps and 12 traditions of this program. Um, so, you know, some things happened. Uh, just that... that showed me that I had no alternative. Either I was going to do this 
or I was going to die. So the last thing that happened was uh, on November 17th, I went to a meeting, and uh, I, I was still only going to one meeting a week. I went to the Wednesday night meeting, and I stopped on the way home to get a snack. And uh, for me, that snack, it wasn't dinner, it was a snack. Uh, Quickway, one of Oakland's finer eating establishments. Um, and I had three double cheeseburgers, three corn dogs, two large orders of fries, and a chocolate shake. And that was my snack. And, um, and then I went home and ate some more and went to bed. And the next day, I called up this person that had been talking to me, and I asked him if he would be my sponsor. And <laughs> what happened that night, I don't know. You know, uh, something happened to me that, uh, that changed, that I realized I couldn't do that anymore. And that day was November 18th, and from, since that day I've been abstinent. You know, I talked... I talked to that man, and uh, I have one other thing to add about that first meeting. I, I always leave this out, and I don't know how I can do that. That first meeting I went to, uh, the only thing I said was at the beginning of the meeting, I introduced myself as a compulsive, uh, I mean a compulsive overeater. I didn't say anything. I didn't share during the meeting. Um, after the meeting, um, two people came up and asked if they could give me a hug. And, you know, I know I smell bad. When you're 470 pounds, you can't keep yourself clean. You can't take care of yourself. I could not walk down the street and look in a window and see myself. Yet these two people wanted to come up and give me a hug. I had been so isolated in my apartment. You know, sometimes I'd call up and cancel my appointment with my therapist. And I would go two weeks, two and a half weeks at a time, where the only person I would see would be the pizza delivery guy and the Chinese food delivery guy. And no how matter how big you tip them, the pizza delivery guy wasn't going to give you a hug. You know, the Chinese food guy was not going to give you a hug. They didn't care how much you tipped them. That wasn't going to happen. So for those two people to reach out and provide that human contact was so powerful and uh, touched me so deeply. And one of those people was the person that I asked to be my sponsor. So uh, that happened November 18th, and I, I think that's the second most important thing that I've ever done in my life. Was first to show up to the meeting, second to ask somebody to, to be my sponsor, because I, I think that's when I did my first step. You know, this, to me, this is an action program, and I can march each step by a certain action that I've taken or a series of actions in this program. Um, when I asked that person to meet my sponsor, what I did was I admitted I was powerless. I admitted. And I said for the first time, to me, the six most powerful words in this program, I don't know, and please help me. And as long as I can remember those words, you know, I can hold on to my recovery. If I forget those words, I'm going to lose it because I can't do this alone. The people in these rooms, you know, uh, on a daily basis have carried my ass for the last seven years. You know, and for a long time it was some heavy carrying, believe me. Um, but uh, I have so many things in my life that I owe to the people in these rooms. So uh, I got a food plan, and 
uh, this guy was talking about some crazy stuff, you know. He was talking about three meals a day. And I said, okay, nothing in between. Uh, I, you know, I said, I can do that. And, and, I, and I felt like I could uh, because I was desperate. I was humiliated. I was beaten down. I had no hope left. And to me, this was a way out. He told me about weighing and measuring food. And uh, I said, wow. You know, because I'd done Atkins diet before. And to me, okay, I'm following my Atkins diet. I can eat two and a half pounds of steak and a pound of cheese here. You know, that's on Atkins. Just as long as I don't eat mashed potatoes. And he said, um, you know, he said he didn't eat carbohydrates. And I said, wow, that made sense to me. He didn't eat sugar. That makes sense to me. Because I was a carbohydrate junkie. I knew that. You know, when I ate, uh, I would get up and make toast in the morning. And I would put two pieces of toast in the toaster. And I would eat four while I was waiting for the two to come out. And so I looked down in a minute, and the loaf of bread was gone. Where'd it go? And I got something happened in my body with carbohydrates, with, with those simple carbohydrates, bread and potatoes and rice and those kinds of things, starchy foods that break down fast. To me, they turn into sugar. And I knew I had a problem with sugar because when I was doing speed, you know, and um, it's amazing, uh, I would, my, my dealer would be out of speed or the police would bust somebody and I couldn't find any speed. I would just start shoving the sugar. I'd just start cramming Reese's bars. I'd start cramming Snickers. Because I got that same kind of high, you know, that rush, crash, rush, crash, rush, crash. Sugar and carbohydrates did that for me. And um, I, it wasn't as intense, but it was a good substitute. And when I got both of them together, it, it was amazing, you know. Uh, I would do a bunch of lines of crank and go to Burger King. And uh, all my speed freak buddies were shaking their heads, just, you know, they thought I was sick. <laughs> so uh, when he started talking about these things, not eating these foods, it made sense to me because I knew I had a problem with them. So I started with that food plan, and, uh, you know, I ate pretty good-sized meals. At that time, I was uh, eating eight ounces of protein uh, at, at each meal. Um, and I weighed and measured cheese because I had a big problem with cheese. And things that I couldn't eat one of, I didn't eat. Um, if, if I couldn't eat one of it, it made me crazy. I didn't eat it, you know. And there's a whole bunch of things, man, I can't eat one of, you know. And, and today I don't fool myself. Uh, I have no desire for one cookie. I want a bag of cookies. You know, I want a box of cookies. I have no desire for a piece of pizza. I want the whole pizza or two pizzas. Uh, I don't want a piece of cake. I want a whole cake. And that's knowledge. That's, I'm, I know I'm an addict. And as long as I don't fool myself into thinking that I can eat that piece, I have a chance. But if I think that I can eat a piece of cake or a cookie, I don't have a chance. Uh, I'm gone. Because I know as soon as I start eating again, I'm going to be right back at 470 pounds. And I, that's not my bottom. Like I said, my bottom is dead. You know, that's what this disease is for me. It's life and death. Uh, I work a hard program. I have to because if I don't, I'm going to die. I know that. That's my choices, life or death. And uh, for a lot of people in these rooms, that's the choice. And it's just not a life, whether it's a pretty life. It's life and death, baby. And uh, it's hard to admit that, uh, but it's true. For me, at least, it's true. And there's comfort in that because I know that I can't do the little things, the things I see my friends do. Um, and people say, well, don't you feel deprived? And no, you know, 
I felt deprived when I was eating cookies and I had no life. That was deprivation. What kind of, you know, not eating cookies or ice cream, what kind of deprivation is that? You know, I have a life today. I'm getting married next year. I have a dream job. I have great relationships in my life. I had none of that. That was deprivation. You know, having a cookie, having a piece of cake, having ice cream, having a potato, that's not deprivation. You know, I can live without those things. I'm not going to live without these other things. I know that. So, to me, it's an easy trade-off. So, uh, I, I, I started this food plan. And uh, um, I did step one. You know, I went through the food history and everything. And um, so, I, I got through step one. And, and step one was pretty easy for me, I think. Step two, step three, they were tough. You know, the God stuff was very tough for me. It's still hard for me a lot of times. Um, as I said, I was a dogmatic atheist. And a couple of things happened um, that turned me around on that. First of all, the program was working. But that, that, that really didn't stop me. What happened was, I was uh, one night about four months into my program. Um, I had this brilliant thought. And to me, again, when they talk about cunning, baffling, powerful, this is a perfect example of that type of addict thinking. I, I've been weighing and measuring my food. I've been reporting it to my sponsor. And, I mean, I've been following it to achieve, you know, perfectly. Um, and I got the bright idea that even though I was following my food plan perfectly, that, wow, 10 minutes, okay, um, that for somehow um, I could, uh, my, my, my food plan wasn't perfect. I was eating too much cheese on my food plan. So I got this brilliant idea. Hmm. Let's see. My food plan's not perfect. I could call my sponsor and we could change my food plan, but now I got a better idea. I'm going to call and order a pizza tonight, and tomorrow I'm going to change it and have perfect abstinence. I'm going to break with this old imperfect abstinence, and tomorrow I'm going to have perfect abstinence. You know, to me, that's clear addict thinking. You know, anything, what better reason to justify eating than perfect abstinence? You know, good, solid addict thinking. So I sat down that night to make the phone call, reached out. Of course, I waited late at night so nobody could call me and I couldn't call anybody else. It was a perfect plan. Except for one thing got in the way. I found out I had a higher power. I reached out to pick up the phone I couldn't, I couldn't make the phone call. I had every intent. I reached for that phone, and I could not pick up that phone and make that call. It was like all of a sudden my higher power walked up and slapped me right upside, the, right upside my head and said, I'm here. You know, it was that sudden and that dramatic. And I said, God, I have a higher power. And so uh, what happened was um, I went and uh, I took a walk. It was February. It was raining and cold. I hadn't taken a walk in years. But to me, two miracles happened that night. I didn't pick up the phone and order that pizza, and I went out for a walk. And, you know, all of a sudden, things started happening. Um, I, I, I read the big book, the, excuse me, the uh, AA literature, where they, in, they talk about in the second step, quitting the debating society. I said, maybe I can quit this debating society. Um, I still ran up and talked to every person after 
the, uh, that they shared they were atheist or agnostic and asked them what they did, you know, uh, when they said, God, did you understand God? Well, I really didn't understand God, and I wanted to. Uh, I didn't know that I really probably never would understand God, but uh, that's beside the point. I wanted to. So one day I finally uh, I saw this, uh, this uh, little old lady, Sharon, and she goes, I'm New York Jewish communist atheist, and I'm the last person in the world to believe in a higher power. I said, wow, this woman's just like me. So I'm from Louisiana. <laughs> I'm an anarchist. Uh, and I'm Catholic. But other than that, we were pretty close. We were both atheists. So I ran up to her and I said, what, what's your higher power? And it was her grandson. And she wanted to be able to play with her grandson. You know, get down on the floor and play with him, pick him up, be around for his life. I said, well, I can't use your grandson as my higher power. And she goes, it's very simple. She says, what food do you have the most problem with? And I said, ah, bacon cheeseburgers. And she goes, do you want a bacon cheeseburger as your higher power? And it became clear to me, when I'm in the food, when I'm in the attic mode, I'm turning my life over to that substance. That is my higher power. You know, food became my higher power. When I was eating, drugs became my higher power. They ran my life. That war with food ran my life. So I, I got a sense that as long as it wasn't a bacon cheeseburger, and it was, as long as it wasn't me, I could have a higher power. And it kind of became the sense of doing the right thing. Um, they talk about it in the big book. They were constantly asked God's will to do the right thing. And that's what I try and do. Is I, I made that idea of asking God's will, and I, I have no idea who I'm asking or what I'm asking, but just to be able to do the next right thing. And all of a sudden, all kinds of miracles started happening in my life. Um, you know, I was, I was walking down the street one day, and uh, I got my first little job. I was working for the Census Bureau, and I was going between houses, you know, interviewing people, and I hit a crack in the sidewalk, and I fell down, and I popped right back up. And it was like, oh, my God, that was so much fun, I want to do it again. You know, you 100-pounders out there know what I'm talking about, right? You fall down, uh, it's hard. Six months before I came into program, I fell down in my living room, and I smashed a chair trying to get back up, leaning on it. So to fall down back up and pop right back up, it seemed to me a miracle. And I could go to concerts again and enjoy them. I could go to baseball games. And, man, it's amazing how much of the game you see when you're not in the food lines the whole time. You know, it's a lot more exciting game. So all these things started happening in my life, and I lost the weight, and I got to go away, and um, I was ready to go to work, and I couldn't go to work, you know. Um, I couldn't fill out an application. So I, I was talking to my sponsor at the time. He says, I said, what do I do? He says, you need to do your fourth step. He got in my face. And so I did my fourth step because I had applications that I had great skills for, and I couldn't fill them out. The stack was getting higher and higher, and I needed to go to work. So... I did my fourth step and I did my fifth step. And man, you know, in the big, and I think in the AA literature again, it talks about that, um, five minutes. Uh, so it talks about how um, we see our lives based on our intents. We judge our lives based on our intents and other people judge it based on our actions. And I saw where my intents and my actions did not match up. And I had a lot of things, man. 
Uh, I had oh, so much stuff. I, I was shocked. When I finished my fourth step at 3.30 in the morning, I was pounding my sponsor's door at 8 o'clock in the morning to give it away. And I had things in there. And um, I, I want to talk a little bit about 6 and 7, uh, just to say that I worked 6 and 7 um, through doing daily 10 steps. Not, not real daily, but pretty daily. Uh, I have a format. Uh, that as my character defects come up and things bother me, and I think the thing that bothers me most is fear. I'm a fear-based addict. Fear is my biggest character defect. Giving into that fear, being driven by that fear, paralyzed by that fear, giving it, you know, making that fear my higher power, and, and that's what I work most around six and seven. And uh, writing those ten steps and reading them to my sponsor, reading them to somebody else helps so much with that. But eight and nine, when, when I got to my fourth step, I think the thing I was most ashamed of, and to me, one of the biggest gifts of this program was, um, the biggest thing I had on my fourth step was uh, with my mom. Um, I know a lot of women are going, oh, God, another guy talking about his mother. But um, my mom, several years before I got into the program, had had a heart attack. And she and my sister called me for help to come down and help. And I told them I'd just gotten a new job, that I couldn't come down, that I couldn't, you know, I, if I left the job, I'd be fired. And my mom wanted me to be working so much, she said, fine. I wasn't working, you know. I just outright lied. But as my sponsor pointed out, I weighed 470 pounds. I couldn't take care of myself. How could I take care of my mother? You know, that's, that's where the compassion came in. So we had a relationship when I went into the four-step, man. I said, I got this much stuff about my mom, this much resentment and uh, this much, you know, stuff. Uh, I heard a, a, a program member talk about their eighth step, and they, they gave a very moving eighth step about uh, and ninth step about the amends they made their mother. And I said, that was beautiful. That was really powerful. But I really hope my mother's dead before I get to the ninth step. You know, because I could never see myself making that amends. And let me tell you, my mom died last year. Um, but I look back on that with such joy because I got to make that eight step and ninth step to my mom. <laughs> and when she was dying and I could hold her hands and honestly look at her in the face and tell her that I loved her, and she could see the person that I had become, you know, uh, there was so much joy in that. And I could let her go in peace. She was ready to go. She lived a good life. And our relationship had healed. And I'd been there for her at the end, you know, every step of the way at the end. And uh, to me, the healing in this program that allowed me to have that moment with my mother as opposed to what I know I would be feeling now if that had never happened, uh, I can never thank this program enough. I can never thank people in these rooms enough. And it was, it was just so incredible. So, you know, to think about your mother passing, but to be able to take joy from that, there, there's so much in this program. This program has so many gifts to give. So, um, you know, service has been a big part of my program. Uh, when I walked in these rooms, I had nothing in my life. I had no use. I had no value, self-value, self-esteem, you know. Ask the people in these day, I was a champion putter-chair-upper. You know, I could, I could put chairs up forever. I loved doing it because it meant I had something to contribute. I had something to give. If you're feeling bad about yourself, go do some service. Go help set up a meeting. Go talk with a newcomer. 
you'll feel good about yourself. You know, the other thing to me is gratitude. I have so much gratitude for this program. This program saved my life. It gave me a life that when I walked in these rooms, I couldn't even dream about the life I have today. I have a perfect job, you know, my dream job. Um, like I said, I'm getting married next year. We're buying a home this summer. I couldn't even dream about these things. My dreams when I came in these rooms were to have enough food and enough drugs to make it to the next day. So to have, to have things like these in my life, you know, is to me just incredible. Uh, it's, it's beyond it's beyond my wildest dreams. So um, the things uh, I want to tell people, though, as good as these things are, and you think, wow, things are getting easier. They're not. You know why? Because I'm an addict. And uh, my sponsor used to tell me, hey, Lewis, we're addicts. We're problem people. You know, everything's a problem. It's like when I started dating the woman that uh, I asked to marry me, and if she would have said no, I would have had a problem. Well, she said yes, and I have a bunch of problems. You know? <laughs> I asked her to marry me. If she would have said no, I would have had a problem. She said yes, I got a bunch of problems. Uh, we're going to buy a house. We're going to make offers on a house. They say no, I got a problem. They say yes, again, I got more problems. And being a fear-based addict, these are real problems, you know. I can work myself into insanity over these kinds of things if I'm not working my program. You know, I have to work my program. In, um, in the big book, it talks about it all the time. It says, faith without works is dead. It says, how appalling true for the compulsive overeater. The compulsive overeater failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others. He could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely eat again, and if he eats, he will surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed. With us, it's just like that. If I don't work my program around these problems, and that means the bigger my life gets, the bigger my problems get, the bigger my program has to get. You know, if I want a little life, I can have little problems. If I want a big life, I have big problems, and I have, I have to have a big program to accommodate that because I'm an addict. When I did my fourth step, I said I wanted to find out what I was. You know, I thought, well, I'm a machinist, I'm an anarchist, I'm a labor organizer, I'm a deadhead. You know, what am I? And what I found out was I'm an addict. That's what I am to my core. I am an addict. You know, I read the first four chapters of the big book, and I see this is what I am. I read the rest of it, and this is my solution. Um, you know, my favorite story in the big book, The Man Who Mastered Fear. He talks about a point where he gets down on his knees. He's so terrified, he can't walk around the block. He gets out of the hospital, and he's at Dr. Bob's, and he's about ready to go out in the world. And he says, either I'm going to drink and die, or I'm going to do something. He got down on his knees, and he said, God, please help me do this thing that I've been able to do. And that's what I do. When I reach a problem, when I reach that point of panic and confusion and fear that I can't move, I get down and I say, God, please help me do this because I can't do it by myself. And people in these rooms have helped me. I mean, people in these rooms have put me through mock interviews. And when I walked in these rooms, you know, my attitude was the only good manager is a dead manager. You know, that's, that's the kind of person I was. And I have managers, people in these rooms that are managers, and they help me prepare my resumes, and they help me prepare mock interviews, and they help me get ready. And today they're some of my best friends. And it's just things have changed for me. My whole life has changed. 
I came in here looking to lose weight, and I found a way to live. And that way to live is through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 steps and 12 editions of Overeaters Anonymous. You know, um, I cannot dream of the life I have today. I know I've left out a ton of things uh, that I wanted to say to you guys. Um, I just have so many gifts. I'm so grateful. To me, gratitude is like spiritual Prozac. You know, I can be down in the dumps and in that area of self-pity and wallowing. And I think about where my life was when I walked in these rooms and the way my life is now. And it's gone in an instant. It's just like instant Prozac or whatever you want to call it. Um, it washes away the fear. It washes away the self-pity. I have to have gratitude, you know, and I can move on. I want to close. Um, this, uh, this convention is about uh, recovery, the sweet uh, music for our souls. And um, I want to quote a song from an addict, one of them, an addict that didn't make it to, to the rooms. Uh, he died a tragic death. But to me, this is... This is my OA theme song. This is the way I feel about this program, and this is the way I feel about you guys. And um, I, I just want to thank people here so much. Uh, you've meant so much to me. And uh, if I can ever give any of it back to you, um, please don't be afraid to ask. I, I can never give back what, what you guys have given me. This is by Marvin Gaye. How sweet it is to be loved by you. How sweet it is to be loved by you. <coughs> I needed the shelter of someone's arms, and there you were. I needed someone to understand my ups and downs, and there you were. With sweet love and devotion, deeply touching my emotion. I want to stop and thank you, baby. I just want to stop and thank you, baby. How sweet it is to be loved by you. How sweet it is to be loved my, by you. I closed my eyes at night, wondering where I would be without you in my life. Everything I did was just a bore. Everywhere I went, it seems I'd been there before. But you brightened up me up for me all the days with a love so sweet in so many ways. I want to stop and thank you, baby. I want to stop and thank you, baby. How sweet it is to be loved by you. How sweet it is to be loved by you. You were better to me than I've been to myself. For me, there's you and ain't, there ain't nobody else. I want to stop and thank you, baby. I just want to stop and thank you, baby. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to Convention 2006, Region 2. Yes. Okay. Um, thanks for hanging out for the entertainment part. I'm going to talk and do a little bit of arranging. We have uh, five artists who are going to come up here and entertain you tonight. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of setting up as I go along here because I can do that today. Um, and we're only going to go for about 25 or 30 minutes. Great. Oh, good. Okay, they'll probably stay there for the for the night. Um. Yeah, we're just taking a few minutes. If you if you need to stand and stretch or something, we just we we have some technical needs here. Oh yes, that's right. I wanted to um, say thank you to Carol, who Carol M, who played piano, and Dean, 
and G. Just wonderful. So many people commented over and over about how wonderful the music was to come in. It was a great way to come in. So thank you so much. Carol's been playing. She's been, it's been part of her life. She's been taking lessons um, since she was a toddler. And she's currently playing um, for San Jose State Chapel. And she's played at all the conventions and usually done some entertainment. So in just a minute, we'll have Crystal, who's from San Jose. And doesn't she look so pretty? <laughs> I see some friends from my home meeting. The microphone's not on yet. I think it's, there we go. Can you hear me? Well, I started out this evening with a really wonderful, what I call a God moment. For me, my higher power, I call God. I was sitting all by myself over in the cafe thinking, why didn't I arrange to come with someone? I know there's lots of people from my meetings. And I was writing to my higher power in my notebook. I said, next time I'm going to arrange to come with someone so I can have some fun. And two seconds later, I look up, and a lovely woman um, who I had met at the Serenity Retreat came over and said, would you like to come and join us for dinner? That's a God moment, don't you think? <laughs> so I'd like to dedicate this song to the three lovely people I shared dinner with tonight. And, oh, I forgot. My name is Crystal, and I'm a compulsive overreader in Bulemic. <laughs> the song I'd like to share with you tonight is one that has been just a, a big part of my recovery, and I um, hope that it means something for you. It was written by Stevie Nicks. It's called Landslide. Turned around, and I saw my reflection. 
Wasn't that wonderful? Crystal, thank you so much. Can we all give Crystal another hand? Thank you. I'm Laverna. I'm a compulsive overeater. I'm here to introduce our next entertainer. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm here to introduce our next entertainer. Maria has been studying hip-hop for over a year. She is energetic and enthusiastic about dancing. Tonight she will dance her own choreography in a tribute to the late, great Luther Vandross to his song, Dance With My Father. And tomorrow is the one-year anniversary of his passing, Luther Vandross. And I'd like to introduce to you, Maria.
about him. Um, Bobby's a longtime OA member who has performed at OA conventions in Los Angeles and Points East. He performs regularly in San Francisco and will present the 12 steps through impressions of artists from Cosby to Clinton and Dylan to Dollars. Cash, that is. Johnny Cash. Please welcome Bobby. Thank you. How about a hand for Regina for taking that away from me? Does that actually move completely? Could we move it back? Yeah, I have a for discs. You know that. There we go. Now I can taste back and forth over here. When I first hit the stage, the crowd gathered around. They stared in amazement. At the face they found, it's a bit like the Nero, John Goodman too. But in the end, I'll sound like Lou. My name is Bobby. I'm a funny fellow, a funny fellow, like Lou Costello. How can a mother be a father? How? Can a mother be, hey, I bet. How can a mother be a father? 
after a few jokes, an impression or two, I'll sing you a song before I'm through. I want to be your comedy champion, baby, yours and yours alone, but not for the money, for your funny bone. Okay, you can clap. That's anyway. And now, there are 12 steps. Hi, I'm Casey Kasem. You might know me from American Top 40, but I'm here to host the 12 Steps of OA. Well, let's start with the number one step. It's been the number one step since the... I'm just pausing. <laughs> I know the information. I just, it's for effect, you know. <laughs> I'm powerless over food, and our lives had become unmanageable. It just so happens I have a letter from a young man who says, Casey, I've been binge eating on a regular basis. But now that I'm in OA, I find it doesn't happen quite as often. Well, keep shooting for the stars and stay out of those donut shops. <laughs> and now, step two will be done by Tevia from the Fiddler on the Roof. I'm <laughs> I know the line. Many, many compulsive overeaters. It's no shame in being compulsive. But then again, it's no great honor either. What would have been so bad if I had a small bit of abstinence? If I was abstinence. If I didn't have to eat cake, I would. I bet you thought I was going to talk to you about the traditions. For without our traditions, our business meetings would be as crazy as being held at Lori's Diner. And now step three, done by a fine young colleague of mine, Mr. Bill Cosby. So, I made a, I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to a... So, if you see, it's not me, you see. And so a decision to turn my will on my life, which includes my abstinence. Now, I don't know what abstinence is, but I know what it's not. 
If you're in a room and there are pizza boxes from not that day, you're not abstinent. If there is spaghetti sauce and you haven't had spaghetti in three days, you're not. if there's jello pudding all over the front of your shirt, you're not abstinent. And who else to do step four but the fabulous Fab Four, the Beatles? Excuse me, sponsor, would you take a look? It took me a year to write. It's the size of a book. It's based on a life that is riddled in fear. So I need some peace. So I have to be an inventory writer. Inventory writer. Inventory writer. Writer. And who better to do step five than a man who would never betray your trust or a secret? You know him as the Godfather. Most of us just know him as Marlon. First of all, I'd, uh, I'd like to thank you for coming to me with these, uh, with these things that are on your forceness. I take it as a sign of great respect and and great uh, honor that you would entrust me with this information. <laughs> Be aware, nothing will happen to you. And now, a bit of six and seven. We'll do them in tandem. Hey, Lewis, that was a nice share. Everybody was coming out like beaming because of your share. And now, six or seven. That compliment does not count as martyr my time either, okay? I feel like taking a little sideline just for a second. And now, six and seven will be done in tandem with Mr. Howard Cosell and Mr. Muhammad Ali. This is Howard Cosell speaking to you on step number six. We're willing to take all defects of characters and have them to be dispersed. Unfortunately, I have no character defects. There is nothing about me or my persona that, let me pass it to a friend of mine that might be able to pontificate upon it better. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, humbly remove the shortcomings of Muhammad Ali. <laughs> Step eight, the former president of the United States, Mr. Bill Clinton. I, I've been doing the other guy so much now that I forgot, so let me remind myself how to do this impression. Okay, Mr. Jimmy Carter. Hi, my name is Jimmy Carter. My name is Jimmy Carter, president of Oh, my name is Elvis Presley. I'm the king of rock and roll. I'm just a playing peanut farm from Georgia. I, I love peanut butter. <laughs> All right, rock and roll. 
I made a list of all people that I harmed, and I became willing to make amends to them all. I just want to say I was nowhere near those amends. And now, you guys don't have time to clap, but I appreciate it, okay? No, because, no, no, you don't have time because I already stretched it from 5 to 10, and we're coming close, and I want to, but I do appreciate it. Maybe do this, and I'll know that you would want to. Well, that's nice. I could really get off on that for a while. That'd be good. Where am I? Nine? You guys might not want to hear nine. Hi, my name's George W. And let me tell you, I realize, of course, I have to do the step. Because I see a number. It's it's the number nine. It's a good number. The American people deserve a good number. If we do not succeed, we run the risk of failure. Now, I would like to make amends except when it would harm others. If I apologize, it will hurt the American people. I have nothing to apologize for. And now, step ten by Mr. Steve Irwin, or you better know him as the Crocodile Hunter. Crikey! Every day on this step, you've got to continue to take a personal inventory. And when you are wrong, or even when you are right, deal with it that day. Well, earlier, I got in quite a row with my Sheila. And I was wrong. I got to go clean up this wank of a mistake right away. Now, that should have killed, but you have to follow Bush. So, you know what I'm saying? It should have. No, no, it's okay. Picture, if you will, step 11. I'm not serving. I'm not even going to wait for Casey Kasem. Picture, if you will, a step through prayer and meditation. You're able to contact a conscious God, some power that will give you the ability to do what you've never done before. When you've achieved this, you realize you are in the abstinence zone. Well, you know, I've had a good time. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Neil Diamond. Hey, how you doing? I've had a real good time out here, and I just want to pass on the message that I was given through a spiritual awakening. I thought food would always get the best of me. Seems the more I ate, the worse it got. Oh, what's the use in trying? All you get is pain, disappointment, and the scale. It made me insane. Then I found a way that I'm a believer. It's the only way to keep doubt from your mind. I'm in love. Ooh, I'm a believer. I couldn't leave her if I tried. Everybody. And I found a way. You guys need to take a vote on how you're going to do it first. Thank you very much. I went past my time, but you guys were great.
give Bobby another, another hand. Let's give Bobby another hand. Wasn't that wonderful? Well, I would like to, to now introduce uh, Regina.